I'm going to talk about uh, something that um, uh, I am now, uh, I've become possessed with. Uh, I'm writing an essay for the Law Review here. I um, uh, start the essay uh, with uh, a part that I need not talk about here because you all know what happened here last year. You know, I talk about that a bit. Um, and uh, I talk about the fact that for some people, and I think your dean may have uh, alluded to that this morning. Um, oh, there you are. So um, I think for some people, uh, Charlottesville has become uh, the, the word that refers now to what happened last year. It's not even the place where Thomas Jefferson started the University of Virginia as much as, of course it is, but I think you know what I mean. Um, but Charlottesville is so much more than that. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here with you today and to share a few thoughts with you um, uh, because we are in an extraordinary time. And the tragic events that happened last year are only part of a series of tragic events in which we find ourselves these days. Uh, we're in uncharted territory. You know, I'm not going to talk about what happened yesterday. Uh, I assume that you all watched it. Uh, but it was an extraordinary day, and we'll remember it um, for the rest of our lives. Just as, you know, I remember uh, the uh, hearings for now Justice Thomas. Uh, so, uh, extraordinary times. Um, I began, I teach, um, as you've heard, 14th Amendment. And I have long thought that uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is dead letter law. I haven't talked much about it. And indeed, it has to be dead letter law in many respects. Because, uh, as you know, everyone to whom Section 3 could have applied is dead. And so it's dead letter law because there are no more living uh, veterans of the Confederacy. Um, so why talk about Section 3? Uh, you know, what, what possible relevance could it have uh, in this time, uh, you know, in the 21st century? I began to think about what happened here in Charlottesville, and I began to think about what has been happening and is still happening in Chapel Hill. I don't know how much you follow it. I'm the, uh, the head of the UNC Center of, uh, for Civil Rights in addition to holding an endowed chair that I, I just have to mention because, not because I'm trying to brag or boast, but because you should know about the individual for whom the chair is named. His name is Julius LeVon Chambers. We've lost him too. 
several years ago. And Julius was one of the great lawyers in the United States. Uh, the third director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. Julius was born in a small town. This is relevant, so hold on. Uh, a small town uh, called Mount Gilead, outside of Charlotte, in the segregated South. Uh, went to a, a public school that had poor facilities. It wasn't a great school. He didn't get a great education. Uh, but when he graduated, he went on to uh, what was then uh, North Carolina's primary school, actually a couple of them, uh, of higher education for African Americans, uh, now called North Carolina Central. And he graduated near the top of his class by dint of hard work. And after that, went to the University of Michigan camp and got a graduate degree in history. And after that, came back to North Carolina and was maybe the fourth African-American student. There had been a few ahead of him earlier in the 50s. This is late 50s by that time, to apply to North Carolina Law School. He was admitted. He was admitted, and there's a biography of him that talks about the fact that his test scores were the lowest in his entering class. The dean told him, uh, you'll do fine here, just stay away from white women. Julius was married, didn't have any interest in any other women, much less white women. And uh, he focused on his education. They didn't treat him there well when he was there. Julius graduated number one in his class, first in his class at UNC, and editor-in-chief of Law Review. At the annual soiree, at the end of his third year, that Law Review had at a country club every year, he couldn't attend because it was a segregated country club. Number one in his class, editor-in-chief of Law Review, and all but one faculty member declined to do anything to lift a finger to help him get a job. The rest of the story I won't tell, except to say that he ended up finding his way to Thurgood Marshall at the Legal Defense Fund and became one of the first two interns at the Legal Defense Fund. The other one was in a special program that Thurgood Marshall founded. Uh, the other one was Marion Wright, now Marion Wright Edelman. High cotton. So I hold this rotating chair there. Um, and one of the last things in Julius's life that happened was that the law school created a center for civil rights. Uh, Julius did that. It was the reconciliation, to talk about reconciliations, between Julius and UNC, because they did not treat him well. And the larger black community in North Carolina, who, they were very proud of Julius. You know, he had started the first racially integrated law firm in the South, litigated many of the major landmark cases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I get down there and I take this chair 
in Julius's name and uh, headed up the Center for Civil Rights. And the first thing that happened was that the Board of Governors came after the Center and stripped it of its ability to bring cases. Some of you may know about that. I won't go into detail about all of that, except to say that it was shameful. I have no love for those on the Board of Governors. Some of them strut around in plantation suits and uh, would bring back the peculiar institution if some of them could, and I mean it. Racism is alive today. And North Carolina is the belly of the beast right now. Uh, but I'm still glad to be there because some people run from fires. Sometimes you got to run to them. Uh, so uh, I was thinking about Julius, the center, I was thinking about Silent Sam. You all know who he is? Uh, a statue that was erected in 1913, funded by the Daughters of the American Revolution. It's a statue of a Confederate soldier facing north to defend UNC from all invaders. On the day that it was dedicated, Julian Carr, after whom the adjacent town of Carborough is named, gave the dedication speech. A leading citizen talked about how at that very spot when he came home from the Civil War, he horsewhipped a black wench less than 100 yards from where they were standing during the dedication because she was, well, insolent to a white woman. So he whipped her until her skirt hung with shreds. I've thought about that woman many times, and I continue to think about her. Unnamed, uh, but that's what happened at UNC campus. And yet, that statue dedicated to the Confederacy stands or stood uh, in an honored place in the center of the campus. I'm talking about that because this struggle that we've been having in this country with respect to the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow segregation is an ongoing struggle. Uh, and that statue meant something very clear to African Americans when it was erected. And it was intended that way. Just as the monuments that were put up in Richmond uh, to uh, Robert E. Lee and other generals of the Confederacy, they meant something. They were meant to deliver a message that the lost cause lived on, even after Reconstruction. And at the end of Reconstruction, the cause for which the Civil War was fought was not dead. Now, there are many people who say, you know, this is not about racism. It's not about slavery. In fact, they say that the Civil War wasn't fought about slavery. You heard that many times. It was fought about states' rights. I heard there was a conference at Duke, and unfortunately, I didn't make the whole thing. But somebody had the nerve to get up, an older man, talk about his family, 
with pride in the plantation they owned and how well they treated the slaves on that plantation. This is in 2018 in the spring. And I made up my mind that if I ever hear anybody do that again, I'm going to stand up and do something that I can't do. I told my wife that I'm going to sing. And I'm going to sing, oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. My children know that song. You know, you think about those words and the people who sang that song and that somebody would get up and have the nerve to talk about slaves being happy and treated well. I think about this all the time because I think about how on the University of North Carolina's campus, that statue stood there for 105 years. And when they finally admitted black folks, we are supposed to pass by that statue and respect it or honor it, or at least accept it. Well, you know what happened. That statue has been torn down, just as Robert E. Lee was removed here in Charlottesville. You know what happened after that. Pardon me? He's still there. He's still there? Yes. Oh, well, there's some work to do here. <laughs> uh, so here's what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Disability Clause. Uh, it disabled former Confederates from, from serving in the military or in state or federal office if they had betrayed an oath they had previously taken to the Constitution of the United States. They were traitors. They engaged in treason. They waged war against their country. Now, I am a student of history. My wife will tell you, I think, if she could, that I drive her crazy coming up and down the highways and byways and wanting to stop to see all the, the signs on the side of the road and dragging her to places like Fort Sumter and Appomattox. I didn't take her, but I took my oldest son uh, to Gettysburg. And I've been over to see where Stonewall Wall Jackson died. You know, I like seeing these places because I'm a student of history. But that doesn't mean I honor these people or their cause, because I don't. Uh, so this Section 3 was in place with the provision that a two-thirds vote of Congress could re restore uh, the rights, the full rights, to these individuals. And over time, Congress did, with respect to many individuals, and eventually in 1898, 
blanket removal of those disabilities. 1898, the same year as the massacre in Wilmington of African Americans. If you don't know that story, find out about it. In fact, I just so happened today, I saw somebody sent me from the UNC campus uh, a, an article about the football stadium at UNC, Keenan Stadium. Most people didn't realize that Keenan Stadium was named after an individual who took part in that massacre and machine gunned himself about 25 African Americans to death. Some people say up to 300 black folks were killed. It was the only coup d'etat in the history of the United States. That's what it was. They called it a riot to suggest that black people were responsible for what happened. But it was a coup d'etat and a massacre. So when I think about this issue of the Confederacy and whom do we honor and how and why, uh, some people say, my ancestors. I'm honoring my ancestors. They didn't fight to preserve slavery. Well, they did. Go read the Ordinance of Succession of South Carolina. You can't make that argument in good faith. Uh, but let me just share, and I want to close this up, some personal thoughts uh, that I think may be relevant. About 100 miles from here, uh, my maternal grandmother's family, that's where they lived. Uh, and I can trace my ancestry and have back to Charles City, Virginia, and can trace them back to the 1700s, early 1700s. And in fact, uh, can trace back and find one of the, well, the only white ancestor, look at me, the only white ancestor that I can identify. Now, obviously, there were more. But this is the one I can identify, and he was in the Virginia militia and fought during the Revolutionary War. Well, I think about that, and I think about the ancestors that I found, but I've also been connected to another family, to some black ancestor I have not identified. Although I've identified, or I had identified for me, the white ancestor in that family, Isle of White, Virginia. It's fascinating stuff. So he obviously impregnated a slave woman, as I say, whom I haven't been able to identify. And his family, big plantation owners, etc. How do we reconcile ourselves with that history? You know, if the people who honor the Confederacy and Silent Sam and the people who marched here in Charlottesville say they were honoring their ancestors, I, too, have Confederate ancestors and slave-owning ancestors. We don't have to honor everything our ancestors did. 
We're not responsible for what they did. We're only responsible for what we do in our time. But the American story is a very complex one. Do you remember in 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president and there was an individual in Missouri who decided to try to run for the Senate there? He was a member of Congress. Do you remember that? I see at least one person nodding. And he very infamously made a comment that was supposed to be about abortion. He said that it was unnecessary for a woman to seek an abortion because, what did he say? There was something natural, a defense mechanism that kicked in if a woman was raped. And of course people got upset about it, righteously. But I thought to myself, there are millions of people of African descent in this country whose very countenance has put the lie to what he said. I'm Exhibit A. And there are many others. That's who we are in this country. That's what we are. It's a complex story. But we're not required to honor those who enslaved or defended the institution of slavery and fought for it to preserve it, or those who engaged in genocide against Native Americans, or those who excluded Asian Americans from this country, we're not required to do that. And I would say to European Americans, you're not required to do it either. Just because your ancestors may have done something doesn't mean you're required to honor everything that we did, that they did rather. So this, this business of the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, let me wrap this up. Section 3, disabilities removed in 1898. But I've begun to think about Section 3 and the fact that if the letter of Section 3 can't be violated any longer, the spirit of Section 3 is surely being violated. When the same people who would have been disabled by that provision have monuments erected to them in spite of the fact that they're traitors. Some of them have US military bases named after them. 10 military bases named after people who wage war against the United States. You know, the Redeemers movement was very successful. Um, whether it's towns or cities, naming streets after Confederate generals, whether it's the state government like the board of, uh, well, the legislature in North Carolina enacting a law in 2015, only three years ago, saying you can't take down monuments and statues protected them in this day and age from removal. These are confederates in this legislature. Whether it's the federal government, as I say, military installations, or whether it's the Supreme Court of the United States. I sat this summer at a program in the Great Hall in the Supreme Court and there 
they gathered about 10 of the first state Supreme Court justices who were African Americans for this program. Loretta Lynch did an introduction. She sat down. She was sitting in front of me. I've known her for many years. I tapped her on the shoulder. I said, this is really ironic. Because right in front of her in that hall was a bust of Roger Tawney. And we all know what Roger Tawney thought about African Americans and what he wrote in Dred Scott. Whether it's Keenan Stadium on the campus of UNC named after somebody who engaged in a massacre of black folks, whether it's Roger Tawney who massacred the rights of African Americans, said they couldn't be citizens, no rights, white people were bound to respect, whether it was state and local government in North Carolina or Virginia, I don't need to tell you about Virginia, all of these honors and monuments, memorials to the Confederacy are part of a piece with respect to the continued legacy of slavery and Jim Crow segregation and subordination of African Americans. And yes, we've made a lot of progress. My God, we saw the inauguration twice of the first African American president. Thought I'd never see it. But Lord, look where we are now. You know, the lesson is that we can never be sanguine. We always have to be vigilant. The struggles are never over, they continue. So, the spirit of section 14, or rather section three of the 14th Amendment, in my view, I've been thinking more about it, the spirit of it, it means something. Um, and I believe that uh, we should not whitewash history. I'll continue to go to all these historic places. Maybe they can have statues up there of people who fought on both sides of the Confederate, uh, of, of the Civil War rather, including the Confederacy. But we ought not be honoring these people and what they stood for and what they did. They betrayed our country. And that's what was at issue last year here in Charlottesville. And fortunately, most white people, I believe, no longer, even most white Southerners, abide by it. You know, I honor Heather Heyer. We're going to go and see, I guess they have a, a spot in which they honor her here. So we're going. Uh, we're going to see it. And all the rest of the people who are there demonstrating against hatred. Um, and uh, I also am optimistic, if only because I think that we have to be prisoners of hope. Uh, if we're not, we might as well lie down and die. There may be every reason right now to despair, given who occupies the highest office in the land and the madness that we see every day. There may be every reason. I have friends who say, you know what? It doesn't make sense to stay here anymore as an African-American. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Caribbean or to Morocco, one of my friends tells me. So uh, I hear him. I can't do it. I can't do it. There was a 
a singer that most of you don't know because you're too young in the 1960s, Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> Curtis Mayfield sang, this is my country. And I remember that song and sing it to myself all the time. So I've gone on too long. Thank you for your patience. I'm done. Uh, I wish you the best, those of you who are law students in the rest of your law school career and what you uh, do after law school. I wish all of you who teach and work here and live here in Charlottesville the best. This is your community and God bless it. Uh, Amali, I'm done. You don't have to rush me anymore. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>